0: com and definitely check out those shows as well i hope you'll all check out the all-new zibby mag z-i-b-b-y-m-a-g the literary lifestyle destination with essays book news a lit lifestyle feature and even some classes check it out zibbymag.com elaine costello is the author of how to read now essays Elaine was named 30 of the planet's most exciting young people by the Financial Times. She was born and raised in the Bay Area. Her debut novel, America is Not the Heart, was a finalist for numerous prizes, including the L. Big Book Award, the Center for Fiction Prize, and the Aspen Words Literary Prize, and was named a Best Book of 2018 by NPR, Real Simple, LitHub, The Boston Globe, San Francisco Chronicle, The New York Post, Crocus Reviews, and the New York Public Library. Welcome, Elaine. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss how to read now essays. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a real joy to be here. Oh, it's so fun. This is so interesting. There's so much here that I responded to. I have like a million dog-eared pages. Oh. Why don't you tell listeners a little about what this essay collection is about? Sure. I
2: mean, I think um, it's <laughs> at some point I was joking to someone. They were like, well, what, what was, why did you write this book? And I said, I think I said something along the lines of, well, it was either write this book or just leave literature entirely. <laughs> <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> it was just starting to, and I talk about it a little bit, especially in the in the author's note and in the intro about the kind of events that led up to it. And it really came out of, I mean, I wrote this mainly on book tour on my when I was on book tour for my first novel, which was, it came out in 2018 and I started writing this. I was at the um, It was like a period of time where I was at the Sydney Writers' Festival and then the Auckland Writers' Festival in like May, spring 2019. And by that point, I was already a year into tour, and I had sort of, you know, run, you know, you run the gauntlet of, of all of the kind of tour experiences. And it just started, you know, the things that I was just seeing, the ways that writers of color were being framed in their kind of contemporary literary discourse, it just increasingly just started to seem impossible to ignore, impossible to just absorb. So then, I was in New Zealand, and I mean, I talk about it a lot in the book because New Zealand or Aotearoa, you know, has such a uh, t- takes such, takes up a lot of space in the book because I had really a kind of altering or sort of transformative experience there in a way that I I don't think I've really had before. And so it's that kind of somewhat epiphanic experience of being in a in, in a new place and just started writing in a fugue state
0: there, and, and, yeah, and here we are. <laughs> So what about that experience made you want to like take pen to paper? I mean, I think well, I think it's probably a combination of you're so far from home, you're already
2: losing it. <laughs> I mean, the the writers festival circuit is such a it's it's such a wild thing anyway because it, it 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 takes people who are very used to just being alone writing in rooms and then suddenly it's like here, have sociality. <laughs> That's going to go well. So, <laughs> I <laughs> But actually it did really go well. I met some of my, I mean, the 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 writers and the the friends now that I met there we still are all in touch we kind of jokingly call it like the cl- this class of spring 2019 because that experience I think was special for all of us i think for me recently i've been thinking a little bit about travel writing i don't know i think travel writing is such a fraught genre nowadays i was telling i think i was saying this in a, in another interview where we were talking i was talking about travel writing i mean obviously you know there there is a like the the grand majority of travel writing and the history of travel writing is ultimately one that's told by a white perspective about sort of the exotic land that now I'm writing back to my colleagues about, you know, our man in Havana or wherever or you know kind of fetishistic descriptions of like the philippines and all the mangoes and all the people are so lovely you know that kind of writing <laughs> so you know i think <laughs> i think like anyone i have a kind of a trepidation around travel writing and, and and i was aware myself that the experiences that i was having i was like oh god is this gonna be just like eat pray love buys? what am i <laughs> questioning myself about but you know i also you know there's 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 also the subset of travel writing like James Baldwin writing about paris or writing about france or writing about switzerland in ways that both write about the actual place illuminate the place in maybe ways that i, I haven't uh, I, I hadn't read before but also illuminate his own relationship to home so i think that's really what captured me is that in a way the space you know i, I was spe- taken with the specificity of Altero with its materiality, with learning about its colonial history and withdrawing the connections between the, res- or, or seeing resonances between its history and the, you know, history of the Philippines, the colonial history of the Philippines or the colonial history of the West, especially because, you know, like in New Zealand, I was hiking. I don't hike. <laughs> I'm not a hiker. But then, of course, starting to do that, doing something that you would never do at home, it started getting me thinking about things like climate justice and nature and, and, and of course, the, you know, the. Not just history, but the present of wildfires in, in California and how all of those so you start to make kind of unexpected connections when you're taken out of your comfort zone ultimately.
0: Wow. You know, one thing you did a lot in the book is talk about the zodiac signs and everything. <laughs> <laughs> Don't spit your coffee out. It <laughs> was a near miss. The computer was getting <laughs> to get wet there. That was dangerous. <laughs> Tell
2: me about that. I loved that. Hi okay <laughs> okay. I, I only very recently got into zodiac sands. A friend of mine told me to download a, an astrology app. And prior to that, I just I was I was a skeptical person. I was like, oh, stop trying to analyze your entire life through this framework. And I don't know, I must have downloaded at the perfect time in my life because I've only been into it for the last two years, but now I realize very typical Virgo, I've done now enough research that I could probably do a PhD about it. And I think, I mean, genuinely, well, one thing I was joking to a friend of mine, uh, a fellow queer friend of mine, I was like, there's a lot of zodiac signs in here because it's really just important for us to represent queer culture. <laughs> and he was laughing about that. <laughs> I mean, it's also true, but I think, I think, well, for one thing, it's just, it's, it's fun to me. It's delightful to me. But I think I also have re- recently realized, especially as someone who can be, I mean, my love language, as this book, I'm sure will <laughs> indicate, is like nonstop criticism. <laughs> so that's how I tell you that I love you. So I think it, Zodiac stuff or astrology really offers you a really useful language, because instead of just being like, oh, you're wrong about everything, you can just, be, it, it softens the blow to be like, oh, you're such an earth sign. <laughs> and, you know, that. so it gave me this dialect to to be able to critique my friends or you know the people in my life without being like oh you're doing everything wrong they're like yeah we have heard that before
0: wow so, wait what, sorry what sign are you why don't you try to guess do you have an oh, idea we've oh, only, oh, we've, oh. i've known you for three minutes so oh, yeah, you know three minutes i mean oh i'm really i'm bad at by um, earth sign i'm gonna go with earth sign. Actually, how do i know if it's an earth sign oh, i know earth, what it
2: is earth sign is a virgo taurus or capricorn
0: Oh, okay. Well,
2: now I just, I mean, now I think I'm shooting. I I think I should only get one, yes. I'm a Leo. Oh, it's Leo season. Congratulations on Leo season. Thank you. So what does that mean? Should I be leaping around in excitement? Uh, I think it, either genuinely, I think, isn't it a thing that almost all like, Hollywood stars are Leos. Like it's a very gregarious act. I mean, this book is a Leo because it came out yesterday. I was just
0: telling someone, I was like, this book is a Leo. <laughs> and it, that's it, so it, funny. I mean, yeah, that's really funny to give every book, a <laughs> give every book, its own zodiac sign and all that. My kid, my kids and I are kind of like obsessed with this right now. I think that's why I was drawn to this album. <laughs> This small <laughs> element of the whole bigger picture story, but um, they're literally on the way to camp this morning. You can go onto some zodiac app and it can tell you based on your sign and like maybe one other thing how old you'll be when you meet your soulmate. Oh <gasps> no! Yeah. yeah, wait, I want to so do like this. one of my kids is gonna meet that my one of my younger kids. They said fifteen, and another kid they oh. said twenty eight. And I'm like, all right, okay, good. This whoa, is good to know. You know, whoa. we can like prepare. Ourselves prepare. It.
2: <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah, we, we, someone should do a listicle of books by their go- zodiac signs. Like, oh my <laughs> god, I love that. Wouldn't that be funny? You'd be like this way, and then you would be like, because I, for example, I found out recently that Wong Kar Wai, the Hong Kong director that I talked about in the book, he's a Cancer. I was like, all of his movies are Cancer movies. <laughs> Wow! So, then, so now, now it's like my my grand operating my what is it grand unified theory?
0: Oh my gosh, I love that. Well, if you post about it and I'll like share the reel and be like, See, "This is what we're talking about." You can do all the research, and I'll I'll benefit from it because you, you have so much time too. You know. So there was also I know we're joking around a lot, but there was a very you know there was a sad element with your dad and his health and his passing away and how that factored into reading and how reading got you through that and how reading, you know, I i completely relate to how reading can get us through different situations. Tell me a little more about that time of your life and, you know, even the ectopic pregnancy or yeah, something. Is yeah, that, so yeah, yeah. no, I'm so sorry that happened. How have books sort of been the, the through line for you? Yeah. You know, I mean, I think it would have been impossible for me to write
2: about reading or my reading life without talking about the person who introduced me to books, and that was my, my father, and he was the person who, who, I mean, he was such a huge reader himself, even though in his life, he didn't do anything that was related to, you know, reading or literature or even the humanities, really, I mean, humanities in terms of arts, you know, he, I mean, by the time that I knew him, by the time he was born in his California life, he was a security guard in his life in the Philippines long before I was born, because he, he was 54 when I was born, he was an orthopedic surgeon, so there was no, you know, his love of books was this totally personal, idiosyncratic, not at all, like, academic relationship to it. And that because of that, he passed that down to me. So we were, like, reading across genres. He was never like, oh, you should read this because it's 18th century literature. It was like, well, you should read this because it's, you know, Thomas Mann, or well, he's not 18th century, but, you know, Thomas Mann, or you should read um, James Joyce, or you should read Virginia Woolf, or you should read... and. And because of that, you know, it, it, I don't, it didn't come with the kind of normal preconceptions that I think will come with if you, if you read all of those books in an English class and someone's telling you this is great literature and this is part of what's known as the canon. I think w- with us, because everything was so mixed, it really was a kind of reading where we created our own canon. And obviously, you know, English was not his first language, English is frankly his third language. So there was that also that we, you know, were able to come to it. In these really kind of diffuse sort of, yeah, freewheeling ways. But then I think I also was always aware, because of my dad's class background because you know his literacy was also really tied to his class background because he came from, I mean, obviously by the time my parents were married, it was, we grew up in a working class family, but his how he grew up was as an upper middle class kid in the Philippines, which is such a contrast to my mom who grew up very much, not that very much uh, rural poor. And so her relationship to literacy, her relationship to books is a lot more like she wouldn't read books. For, I mean, she has a much more kind of contentious or um, intimidated relationship with, with books and reading. I mean, not just in English, which is also her third, I mean, I would even say fourth language. But, you know, even in Tagalog, which is sort of considered to be the lingua franca of the Philippines, but it's not her first language. So I think that also w- complicates or, or, or inflected my relationship to books. As, I know my <laughs> That's my dog coming up you know that uh, I was I was aware that it was also as much as it was a a joy not just a joy but I mean the thing that very literally saved me I mean countless moments in my life you know it was also something that was a that was political also that was that was not divorced from questions of class or privilege or you know because would, would I have become that kind of reader if my father hadn't been hadn't grown up the way he'd grown up hadn't had the kind of facility with you know reading Plato or reading you know all of those things so for sure yeah I mean I think the because the book so much of the book is really about understanding how my reading life was this inheritance and really this this labor of love that came from him it would have been impossible to talk about to talk about reading without talking about love and without talking about my love for him.
0: Wow well that's beautiful. I'm sorry. (laughs) Thanks for your lot.
1: there was something else I wanted to read
0: that you have a whole section on, you know, all the anti-Asian violence going Mm -hmm. on and you gave a, a bunch of examples and you said, you know, in 1984, when my mom was heavily pregnant, she was standing in line at a department store when an older woman violently shoved her to the ground. No one around helped. In Montreal in 2004, my aunt was once pushed by a young man into the way of a coming subway car, miraculously surviving by huddling between the rails just beneath the train rushing above her. When at 19, I lived on my own in Paris, I became afraid to leave my apartment because an older man who had seen me in a neighborhood cafe had begun stalking me not to mention the nearly endless stream of woe I knee and knee how ma from men that who that would greet me whenever I stepped foot outside. And you go on and on, and you know, you say there are major issues around how we critically analyze anti-Asian racism in both an American and a global context. Is clear that this kind of scapegoating is not new, even in the latest, it's latest Trumpian iteration. There are also a vast community of well anyway, you go on and on and on and on. But I wanted to talk, I mean not like that. <laughs> no, 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 I got you. You go on to write about this topic more, but I just wanted to highlight like all those experiences in your own personal life of people that you love and y- yourself and how that affects or just like the whole culture of your family or like how you, just tell me how you all, inter- like how do you internalize that and be like, oh, okay, and now I'm just going to like pop outside again, you know? Yeah, I mean,
2: I to, to be honest, I don't really think that you do or in the sense of, I, mean, I I think like most people who experience, I mean, frankly, just the PTSD of living in America <laughs> I think a lot of it is compartmentalizing. I think a lot of it I mean my, my, my family could win the Olympics for repression. So and I, <laughs> I I think and I absolutely would win the gold medal and, and and know that about myself. I was just joking to someone about the recent persuasion adaptation and Obviously, I, I'm, I'm not I won't get into it because then we'll be here for three hours. But I was like, <laughs> I was like, this is repressed person erasure. <laughs> like Anne Elliot is an earth sign and a repressed. We need repressed person representation. But so, yes, I mean, I think that, you know, I think when I was writing this, I mean, all of those all of the episodes that I'm talking about, I mean, when when the, the accumulation of them the, the 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 accretion of their force when you when when you write them in the paragraph obviously i mean you know i was uh, in, in researching um all of that i i found the old sort of news clipping about my aunt who the one who had been pushed up into the way of the subway car and i was looking at her photo and the in this Canadian newspaper and the description of it and just going, you know, it, it's one thing to have. I think a lot of, I mean, many of us have family stories that then become legend, but then also become, their edges become worn down with time just because you tell the story or because, you know, survival requires you to, to wear those edges down. But, you know, faced with the those material, the, the material facts of it, I mean, sort of renews its horror for me but I think because of that you know because of my experience in in France which I talk about having having lived in France and and having you know Asian French friends who also experience the kind of I mean just rampant fetishizing infantilizing sexualizing that I think attends Asian women not just in France obviously but in in here in America here I mean I that time was a formative time in my life and I happened to be in France but it's one that's it's an experience that I, I know I mean in all of my group chats and all of my messages is shared by uh, Asian women friends that I know that that grief and that rage and that terror that all of that is real here irrepressible and at the same time I think it's also important for me to talk about all of the places where Asian American or or the Asian American politics and Asian American solidarity also fall short. You know, where are the places where, for example, you know, the, it's a kind of an ongoing frustration of mine that there's always there, there's often these lists of like Asian AAPI readers that you or AAPI writers you should read or books you should read. And the list, they're all Asian American, but there's no Pacific Islander sort of authors on that list there's no books by pacific islanders or writers from uh, writers from guam or hawaii or Samoa. more anything on those lists and like, oh, okay that this is just false advertising or you know the ways where the the ways that pull towards you know representation matters type of discourse can pull us towards the kind of idea A regime of positive representation or representation where, you know, I mean, the the majority of the stories that we see do focus on, for example, middle class, East Asian and South Asian families. And there is an illusion of the experiences of, you know, Southeast Asian, poor Southeast Asian communities, poor marginalized Southeast Asian or marginalized Asian communities, like uh, Asian sex workers, Asian domestic laborers, you know, the kinds of it's an understatement to say that, you know, the Asian American community is not a monolith. I mean, it, the it's, it's both the, it's both the, the, what is it? The, I'm trying to remember Num- numbers are uh, not my strength, but the, the, the statistic that I talk about in that essay is talking about how it it's, I think Asians rank per capita as the highest earning racial group in the states that's not highest earning racial group of color that's highest earning ra- racial group period but at the same time have it's also the group that has the most disparity in terms of yeah income in terms of um, uh wealth so we uh, the even just talking about the class issues that are within asian american community and that, that are so central to talking about what when, when we talk about asian american politics you know even things like that I think, we need to be discussed more. We need to have a sort of a, a wider and a, a thornier conversation about Asian-American, you know, the kind of Asian-American politics that we're, we're trying to produce in order
0: to have Asian-American solidarity. Amazing. You used to teach a class on this. <laughs> I feel like, no, seriously, I feel like I, you're devoid of the podium that should be in front of you. Oh. you, know, you should, no, really. You're like, it all comes out in fully formed sentences. You just like go and there it is. It's perfect. <laughs> I like, it's a skill. That's a skill when I come in. What advice would you have for aspiring authors, especially as such a big oh. reader and somebody who has analyzed reading so much, reading in all its forms as you carefully lay out in the book. It's funny, you know. I think I think my old advice used
2: to be like, "Oh yeah, read more, just read all the time." And now I think, well, this is it's probably it's going to become clear that I'm also like a contrarian. So if I say one thing or think I believe one thing, almost immediately I have to say or think the opposite or challenge myself to think the opposite. But I think recently I have been even just for (laughs) the aspiring author that I am, (laughs) I've been telling myself that, or I've been feeling that it, it actually behooves me to not read less exactly, but I mean, the outcome will be that one reads less, but to read more slowly because I think we Mm -hmm. all, especially nowadays, have this immense pressure to just keep up there's this real like oh if I'm not reading the thing that's in the zeitgeist if I'm not and I'm saying this as someone who literally has a book out so I recognize (laughs) (laughs) I recognize that there's a self-defeating aspect to what I'm saying here but you know that that you can feel that reading can also become this kind of like right to to not feel FOMO because everyone else is talking about this thing and I mean I think I'm lucky in that sense because I think a lot of writers especially if you're working on a novel you're always like three I'm always like 5 years behind just because you know you you read weird stuff to research the weird whatever weird universe you're writing about anyway but I do think i reading slowly reading weirdly reading out of time you know not necessarily always reading this is like the nightmare for for contemporary publishing houses to be like don't read the latest book they're like no please read the latest book <laughs> but I mean for for us as citizens for us as people and readers I, I think it really benefits us you know as I, I mean I read I started reading Edith Wharton recently like Age of Innocence and then I'm like texting people I'm like this is the best book it's ever been like where have you been obviously it's the best <laughs> You know, and then and then I think the flip side to that for aspiring authors is and this is kind of a mean advice, but I'm, it's, a, it's advice I'm turning towards myself, which is that I'm, I'm trying to read slower, but I'm trying to write faster in the mm-hmm. sense that I think the I think the prevailing wisdom is the opposite, which is like read, read, read more, but then also write and take your time and make everything perfect and really agonize over it. And I'm starting to be like, don't be afraid of just it might be mediocre, fam. <laughs> Just, I mean, I, or, or, or to have less kind of anxiety about whether or not like, oh, is this perfect? Is this, is everything? Because I think you can also, I mean, well, you know, <laughs> there's lots of, I, th- I think there's enough mid <laughs> stuff out there that why should you be afraid of not putting out something per, you know, of, of God forbid yeah. you to put out something that's not perfect. Yeah. So in a way, I think sort of having a less precious relationship to yeah. Just try to write something bad. Yeah, Yeah, write something bad.
0: (laughs) Have fun with that. I think it can be really fun. You can be pleasantly surprised if it's anything other than bad. Honestly, exactly. If you're like, I'm going to write
2: something really bad, and then it's like, kind of okay. Not that bad. (laughs) (laughs) And also, you're always your own worst critic. Because, I mean, you know, you might think it's bad. People are like, this this is better than the majority of stuff out there, my girl. So,
0: you know. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Elaine, thank you so much. This oh, has been really fun. Thank you so much for having me. I will me. take my leo and, yes. you know, hit the road in this little month I have of, I don't know. Yes. Happy Leo season to both of you. <laughs> you, and my thank, both. you. thank you. Thank you. Your book and I will have a fabulous month together in the spotlight. Yay. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it was so, so All fun. Right. Thank you so much. Thanks, Elaine. bye Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books.